It's a crazy world out there, and this is the place to help you figure out how to live in it. Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast, the show about how we live as Christian men and as the church in today's radically new and challenging world. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website and sign up for our newsletter today at themasculinist.org. You can also support the work of The Masculinist on Patreon at patreon.com slash masculinist, on Gumroad at gumroad.com slash masculinist, or on PayPal at paypal.me slash masculinist. And now for today's show. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. One more a one-off episode before we get into our series on why the Republican Party hates your guts, uh, which I'm sure you will want to listen to. This is on the importance of keeping your hope levels, uh, your morale levels very high. But first, I got to follow up on uh, last week's podcast about sort of tactics, conservative tactics. And somebody's asking, what what tactics are allowed? And he talked about a situation in in a school where the conservatives have won a battle but in a, I'm a little bit probably summarizing something I don't fully understand, but, but basically the gist of it is it sounds like they got rid of some people they just didn't like anyway and then sort of lied about it. And so I said, really, the most important thing here is you can't lie, right? There are certain things you can't do, right? It's not like every tactic is allowed. I think as, as a Christian, we cannot engage in sort of lies and deceptions, particularly when I think, you know, truth is our greatest weapon. Being in alignment with the truth is important. Now, that's not to say that, you know, telling the literal kind of dialectical truth all the time is, um, you know, required. Uh, in fact, it's essentially required that we not do so in certain cases. Um, I think about in the Bible where Pharaoh wanted all of the uh, Hebrew boys to be killed after birth and the midwives lied and didn't do it and then lied about it. Uh, that seems to be portrayed positively. We could think also about, um, you know, for example, someone who's sheltering Jews during World War II. Uh, you know, the SS knocks on your door, says, do you have Jews hiding here? And I think, the, you know, you'd say, no, no, we don't have any. So the idea that you have to say, yes, yes, they're in the basement, uh, I don't think is something that uh, people would go for. I don't think anybody would believe that, uh, you know, God expects us to do that. <clears throat> and then there's a lot of cases in which, you know, uh, the dynamics of conversations make clear that sort of literal answers are not required. So when somebody, for example, asks, you know, how are you doing? I mean, nobody who asks that wants a discourse on your day. Um, and, you know, I, I got to be careful about that myself because, you know, maybe a touch Aspergery here. I, I you know, I, I tend to tend to answer questions when they're put to me. Like, no, that's just a that's just a social kind of protocol that we go through or or think about the classic. Do I look fat in this dress? I think we can discern that what's really being asked is some sort of question about the relationship. It's not a question about whether someone genuinely looks fat in a dress or not, right? Or I can even think about Jesus, who rarely seems to have directly answered a lot of people's questions. You know, they ask him, well, by what authority do you do these things? He's like, well, I got some questions for you. How about that? Or you could think about, you know, people would ask him things and he'd respond in a parable or something like that, which he then wouldn't explain to them. So, I, you know, I don't pretend to understand the, all the dynamics of this. I mean, I would say, you know, in most cases, 99% of the cases, those sort of call them exception cases don't apply. 
Uh, but I think it would be interesting to to read an interesting theology of um you know of truth on this this is one one if i had like some money to commission alistair roberts or somebody like that to do a little study for me um i'd want to get one uh get one on this one uh, but i i do think here is that tactics need to be rethought we have essentially adopted tactics in america i think that are based on essentially traditional anglo-american you know gentlemanly code those are not principles of the bible they're just cultural principles and again it's, it's sort of our culture in a sense so we have to think about how we how we apply our own kind of cultural norms and truths but i, I think we need to rethink what are like what is biblical tactics and and how to do things and i think it's been realized too that um there, there's kind of different standards for dealing with people who are sort of part of your community and who adhere to a common moral code or code of manners and people who don't. So that was one of the the ideas of the Anglo-American Gentleman's Code is that the the upper classes of these of these countries of the US and England and the Anglophone countries, you know, all adhered to this common standard and they all agreed that we will not only adhere to it but we will hold other members of our class accountable for adhering to it. And if they do not, then there would have been some sort of social penalty or potential social ostracism. But we're doing dealing with people who are outside of that, um, who people who don't respect your your codes of manners and your state, then it's a different story. And so I'm thinking of um, David Hume, for example. He wrote in an inquiry concerning the principles of morals. He's writing about the laws of war, and he said the laws of war, which then succeed to those of equity and justice, are rules calculated for the advantage and utility of that particular state in which men are now placed. And were a civilized nation engaged with barbarians who observed no rules even of war, the former must also suspend their observance of them, where they no longer serve any purpose, and must render every action or encounter as bloody and pernicious as possible to the first aggressors. And, you know, I don't know that we necessarily need to go that far, but this idea is like, hey, the rules are for people who are following the rules, not for the people who aren't following the rules. And if you look at all of the uh, sort of studies and, and different um, things that have been done about optimal game strategies for iterated competitions between two players, the, what, what you find, and, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll Google up a link and uh, and put it in the, in the show notes, is that the most effective strategy is the very simple one. It's tit for tat. You start off sort of doing something nice for the other person, and then you just play a very similar, simple tit for tat strategy. Uh, it beats almost every other more complicated strategy uh, in doing that. So I think that's that's something that's important. I do think we need to rethink tactics and think a lot about that and like what what are tactics that we need to be thinking about and how does that fit in? Of course, you know what's godly. What what there are because there are tactics that we cannot take on. And I would say lying, you know, just outright lying, uh, you know, would would ordinarily be one of them. But the main thing I wanted to talk about today is the criticality of morale, keeping your morale high, keeping your hope levels high, because so much of what we see today, so much of what we read online, really is you know, essentially the councils of despair. Uh, the internet, uh, you know, 4chan types, they call this, uh, you know, blackpilling. It's, you know, this idea that you become essentially nihilistic, 
fatalistic, etc. And when you do that, it puts you into an extremely bad place in which you're very vulnerable, both A, to just being defeated and also to doing crazy things, doing things in great. Despair leads to crazy things. And, uh, you know, we'll see. For example, I think it'll be interesting to see what they discover about this guy who who, who blew up that RV in downtown Nashville. And I was thinking about this as I was reading a post on Rod Rear's blog, and uh, it's called The Final Christian Generation. And I will put a link to it in the show notes. And this is mostly an excerpt from an email someone sent to him that is literally just a uh, on and on and on hopelessness and despair. And I'll just read you a few quotes for it. This writer says, I can imagine that the institution we know as the Roman Catholic Church might collapse in the next 30 years. But when it does, the world won't gawk. It will have already moved on. The Roman Catholic Church will likely go out with a whimper. When it does happen, it won't be cataclysmic. And everything I say about the Roman Catholic Church, I could say about the SBC, which I think is definitely coming to nothing. Non-existence by 2100, irrelevance within just five years. I could say the same about Wheaton, Calvin, Baylor, etc., etc. Oh, prediction. China will continue to outmaneuver us in the South China Sea by aggressively building islands, bases, buzzing our planes, threatening our characters, carriers, threatening our allies, driving wedges. We won't stand up to them. End quote. Right, so that's, that's basically, it's all in this vein. And what you will see is, again, a predisposition to surrender by saying, well, you know, all earthly institutions are destined to decay. You know, every empire is eventually crumble. So we, you know, maybe we shouldn't be too upset about that. You know, I'd encourage you to read it. And like people like this are like the kinds of people you just need to cut out of your life because they're basically giving you the, the counsels of despair. And I would say that attitude is totally contrary to scripture in the Christian life. And as you look at the Bible, it's constant reassurance uh, about God's faithfulness. And, you know, you know what's the most, apparently like the most uh, commonly repeated command in the Bible is fear not. Uh, all the people who sort of fall into despair, um, you know, uh, you know, God sort of sets them straight on that. We can think about, um, was it Elijah, for example? Like, I'm the only one left. He's like, actually, no, I got, got 7,000 more guys just like you, you know. Don't think you're the only one. And so I think we do need to be realistic. I mean, it's hard to be optimistic, right, about the about the Catholic Church. You know, I do think there are negative trends in a lot of these denominations. But when you just go to the fact that it's hopeless, it's over, um, that's just a bad place to be. I mean, I would just say, again, your hope levels, your morale, it's almost, in a sense, the most important thing to get right, because without it, you are just going to preemptively surrender or resign yourself to defeat. And, you know, this kind of goes along with an old masculinist I did, and again, I'll throw a link in the show notes, on what I called your testosterone cortisol level, right? You want to keep your testosterone up, and you don't want to have chronically high cortisol levels, right? Cortisol is a stress hormone. It's good in certain cases. You definitely need it in certain cases, but you don't want to be in a high stress, you know, chronically high stress environment. It's unhealthy, et cetera. And so, you know, the goal is here is to keep your own kind of testosterone levels high and keep, you know, keep your enemy's cortisol levels high. And so I think hope is part of keeping, you know, keeping that testosterone level up, if you will. And I use that somewhat metaphorically. Um, 
it's kind of part of managing that level. And I think you look at it, it's just so critical. I mean, look at a place like Afghanistan, right? The war in Afghanistan. Guerrilla war is all about depleting the morale of a more powerful enemy. It's not about necessarily achieving outright military victory. It doesn't mean you have the best weapons, the best tactics, the best army, the best supplies, all that stuff. You lose if you just keep this thing dragging out and dragging out until the people who've invaded your country give up and walk away. And we see that again. Or, you know, you could think of, think about like Winston Churchill during World War II. He could say, well, you know, guys, I just want to let you know, uh, Germany just rolled through France and all these other places, and, you know, we're toast. So we just need to open up uh, discussions. He's like, no. He's like, we're not going to do that. Uh, we're not going to do that. He's like, yeah. He said, look, I'm not going to, I'm going to level with you. This is going to be tough. What was his quote? Something like, I have nothing to offer but uh, blood, toil, tears, and sweat or something like that. But he's like, look, we're not going away here. We're not giving up. We're going to fight them here. We're going to fight them in the beaches. We're going to fight them in the trenches. We're going to, we're not going to give up no matter what. And uh, ultimately they won, right? I mean, what, what might have happened differently if he'd given in to the councils of despair? And this is related to, uh, you know, a variety of attitudes. My friend Dwight has this provocative line. He says, pragmatism killed Michigan. And like, oh, that's interesting. What do you mean by that? Like, why did the Rust Belt, why did all these manufacturing economies go into decline? And just not so much that they went into decline, but they were never able to reinvent themselves. And what he basically says is, you know, pragmatism is really the highest value in a lot of these Midwestern places. He says, says, pragmatism is all about what I can do with my own two hands with what I have right in front of me. And it's it's a very narrow vision. And the important thing with a pragmatic attitude, which again, there's nothing wrong with pragmatism in his places, there's no room for God to show up there. It's all about what do I see? What can I do? And if I don't see an outcome there, then there's there's no hope. Whereas if you took, compare that to Silicon Valley, compare that to a guy like Steve Jobs, like, hey, I want to build something that's insanely great. I'm going to create this iPod thing that nobody even knows that they want yet. I'm going to create things that I'm not even sure how to create. I mean, it's like first attempt at, uh, you know, what ultimately became the iPhone, I think, was the Newton. It was this personal digital assistant. It was a total flop. He just didn't give up on this vision, right? Or you think about Elon Musk and SpaceX. He's like, man, we're going to colonize Mars. Now, will he be able to colonize Mars? I don't know, but he's like, well, what's the first thing we need? We need a rocket that can get there. So basically, a lot of what he's been doing is like about colonizing Mars. I think a lot of what SpaceX does is just to raise money in order to pursue his Mars colonization venture. And he's done a lot of things like, hey, maybe we could land this rocket and reuse it. Something that people would have thought was crazy. Now all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute, it's not so crazy. He comes up with this idea for this low Earth orbit internet, uh, satellite internet called Starlink. Now, oh, Amazon's copying it. Europe's like, oh, we got to create one of those. Uh, China's like, wait, we got to have credit one of those. I mean, he's just creating things like other people. They got to be like, oh, I got to get me one of those. And so I think this idea that we just, we just, you know, if we don't see the path from A to B, that we just get up. And I, and I think that, um, you know, we've lost something. And my friend Dwight, um, you know, he hates the term consultant, but he's basically a consultant who does exploration. He, he basically studied the methodologies of the great explorers. And he's like, 
We've forgotten how to explore. We've forgotten how to sail off into the unknown. We, we are all about the known. We're all about, I see exactly how I'm going to get from point A to point B. And, you know, we make our plan, our plan. It's like, man, he calls it management. That's management. Uh, whereas exploration is, maybe I don't even know where point B is. I'm just going out there. Or, hey, I got this idea of something over here. I have no idea how we're going to get there. We're just going to have to figure it out. And it's a very different attitude than this pragmatic attitude that says, if I can't figure out how to assemble this thing with directly what's in front of me, you know, I just give up. I don't even start. And hope, right, um, you know, help perhaps can come from lots of places. I linked to an article, um, you know, a while back in Politico called something like how the GOP gave up on porn. And it's basically all about how the Republican Party just basically gave up on any attempts to restrict porn. But a couple weeks ago, in a front page um, piece on the Sunday Review system uh, section, uh, there a New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof wrote all about Pornhub and the fact that Pornhub is full of rape videos, that is full of underage porn videos, that is full of revenge porn, and he's like they refuse to do anything about it, and he's showing you know he's interviewing people who are victimized by it, and what happens? Well, Pornhub, I think, deletes almost half their content overnight. And then MasterCard, Visa, Discover, et cetera, all cut them off. Now, I'm I'm not uh, saying that they're going to be out of business anytime soon. But there is a guy who, you know, as, as, I, as I tweeted, I said, look, a New York Times columnist, Nick Kristoff, who is a pro-pornography liberal Democrat, just did more to reduce the actual flow of pornography online than every Republican in the entire country combined in the last 25 years. He actually saw that and said, yeah, that made me, that made me smile. And, and it's true. And it's like, oh, who's going to shut down X, Y, or Z? Well, maybe it's not going to be you. Maybe there's somebody else out there who's going to shut it down for their own reasons. I mean, think about, for example, all this woke stuff that's going on out there, you know, and just you, you get fired for like, you know, any little random thing. Well, maybe maybe it's going to be Silicon Valley that's going to clamp down on this, tamp down on this, said, hey, we can't actually uh, run a company here if we're being held hostage to crazy people. Uh, we don't know. I mean, help can come from lots of different places. And what I see so much of online is just people who are, in essence, counseling, giving up, or... Um, you know, some form it's implicitly that. One of the, one of the ones is like a very uh, uh, a very common one, and it's um, uh, you know, it's similar to what I, I said from this guy on Dreer's blog, is this idea of oh well, if Christianity goes away in the United States, it's not really a big deal because you know the center of gravity of Christianity is now in Africa, it's now in China, it's now in Asia. I'm like, you are an American, or at least I think some of these people are. They claim to be Americans, at least. And you are indifferent to the fate of the church in your own country. You know, to say that is to simply, is to essentially say, I am going to uh, sell out my own posterity. My children and my grandchildren will probably not inherit my faith. And if they do, they will live in an extremely hostile land. And my response to that is essentially, inshallah, right? Well, you know... Uh, you know, the, the whole world here is, is ephemeral. It's not going to be, uh, in the, in the age to come, you know, everything decays. We can't put our hope in, uh, in the earthly, in the politics. I'm just like, what are you saying? You know, and I, and I wish I'd pulled it up before this podcast 
Um, but there, there's a part in there, there's a uh, question uh, on the, uh, I think it's on the sixth, because it's the sixth commandment or the fifth, fifth command. I can't remember which one is honor your father and mother. It's in the Westminster Larger Catechism. And it goes through all the duties to superiors, duties to equals, duties to inferiors. And like your duty to your children is to provide them with, you know, all things necessary uh, for, you know, spiritual flourishing and health. That's not an exact quote, but it's something like that, right? I mean, Paul wrote, uh, I think it's in Titus, or it's in Titus or First Timothy, he who does not provide for his own family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And, uh, you know, these people who just are so ready to just give up, punt, oh, well, whatever, you know, don't put your hope in this country. And again, there's some truth in that. To say that they're going to sell out their own children and grandchildren's future without even a fight is, uh, it's, it reminds me of nothing so much as Hezekiah in the, in the Old Testament. You know, King Hezekiah received a prophecy Right, that that basically Israel was going, Judah was going to be conquered, the temple was destroyed, everything carried off, but it wouldn't happen until after he was gone. He's like, hey, that's good news, that's great news. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen um, in my day. It's going to happen after I'm gone. So, man, I guess that's pretty good prophecy after all. I mean, what kind of an attitude is that to take? And you should just think about that when you hear somebody saying things like that. Think about what they are saying about what they are going to do to their own children and grandchildren and, you know, what they're giving up on for that. I just think that, you know, I am not willing to do that for my kids. So I, I just think this idea of, you know, despair, giving up, you just can't do it. Realistically, things might be bad. Things do look bad in a whole lot of ways. We shouldn't deny that. You know, maybe in some ways we should be a little bit more pessimistic about certain things even but the key is that we can't let a pessimistic diagnosis rob us of hope because uh, Christians should always have hope. You know, always a, a, you know, an eternal hope is our, is our ultimate hope to be sure. But the idea that we give up hope in this world, uh, I think, is, is just bad. So we have to keep our hope levels high. We have to keep our morale levels high. And we need to be cautious about... You know, how much of this stuff we take in and frankly about letting other people who are, you know, into the councils of despair, uh, you know, haul us into the slew of despond with them. You know, we don't want to end up there. Now, again, I make some exceptions for a few people. Uh, you know, Rod Dreer, the guy, Dreer's, you know, he's a man with, you know, as I wrote, he doesn't have a lot of hope, but he's taking a lot of bullets, right? I'll make, I mean, I'll make a, you know, I'll make an exception for people who've taken a lot of personal bullets personally. And of course, I'm not talking about people who are going through, you know, some kind of ordinary despair and grief caused by, for example, the, you know, maybe you lost a child, a child died of cancer or something. Well, you should, you should go through a process of grieving there. So for, you know, ordinary processes of grief, people who've stood there and taken a ton of bullets, I I can make some exceptions for them. I understand where they're coming from, but people who are not in that camp, you know, just got to, just got to tune those people out. They're not no matter what they say, they're not allies. They're people who are just there to bring us down and keep us from doing something uh, that might actually make a difference. So I hope you all have a great 2021. Thanks for listening so much to the podcast. If you haven't le- yet done so, please leave a review and we'll be back next week.